we started doing ringless voicemails to realtors. And that was actually a very effective way to market to people because we found that ringless voicemails, you know, sellers don't necessarily love those, but the realtors, they actually want to hear from you. If you're serious and you're going to buy a house, they want to be able to actually work with you. So we would send out ringless voicemails to realtors. They would call us back, be like, hey, we're looking to buy fixer properties in the Bay. And that's actually how we found our very first deal together in San Mateo was through a pocket listing with a realtor. This is the Everything Real Estate Investing Show with Sean Penn, where we interview local real estate investors and professionals to go over tips, tricks, and investing strategies to help you learn about the business and to enable you to achieve your financial goals. And now, welcome to the show. Hey everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Everything Real Estate Investing Show with Sean Pan. Today we have Ted Manahan. Ted is an investor in the Bay Area, and in this episode, Ted will tell us the challenges of starting a wholesale company, getting his first few deals executed, and the lessons he learned along the way. If you're new to this podcast, subscribe to the show and leave a review. We release episodes every Wednesday and Sunday, and release the show notes on our site, everythingrei.com slash podcast. By the way, if you need help financing your next real estate project, check out Conventus Lending. Conventus is the best hard money lender with amazing rates and incredible service. I've used them for years, and they've always been incredibly easy to work with. If you need a hard money loan, contact me at sean at everythingrei.com to get $1,000 off of your processing fee. And if you want to know the secrets of how investors in the Bay Area are making huge profits in one of the most expensive markets in the world, download the free Ultimate Bay Area Investing Handbook on our website, everythingrei.com. Enjoy. All right, Ted, thank you so much for being on the show today. Go ahead and let us know who you are and tell us what you do. Absolutely. Thank you so much for having me on the show, Sean. So my name is Ted Manahan. I am a full-time real estate investor based here in the San Francisco Bay Area. I've been doing this full-time since the middle of 2017. And I'm really excited to be on the show, Sean, because actually, you know, when I first started coming back to the real estate investing groups and everything, you know, you were somebody who people were talking about and you were starting to do the podcast and getting onto your podcast and having this sort of credentials and the cachet or experience to be invited on and to share my story was was actually one of my goals. So appreciate the opportunity to be on the show today. Oh man, I'm super excited to have you on the show because I love your story. Thank you. Thank you very much. Yeah. So you want to go ahead and just tell us like how you even get started with real estate? Yeah, absolutely. So I mentioned that I started doing this full time in 2017. The very first deal I actually did was back in 2010. So my background is engineering. I grew up in the Midwest. I went to the University of Kentucky to get my mechanical engineering degree. I had worked for several big companies uh, sort of the typical Midwestern perspective was, you know, get a very good education, go to work for the very large companies. It's a very, very common, you know, family dream for their kids. And so that was what I did. You know, I went and got the good degree and went and worked for these big companies. I worked for GE as a co-op in college and then worked for Toyota after school and as a process engineer, which was a really great company to work for because it was an extremely mature company. And all of their processes were very well thought out and everything was systematized and, and just made a whole lot of sense. And so I had a really wonderful training program. They put me in several different places across the country as part of my initial, part of my first year uh, at the company, placed me in the Georgetown factory, learned a whole lot while I was there. It was 2009 when the 2008, 2009, when the economy really started to tank. 
and the Toyota was doing buyouts. So, you know, the other auto manufacturers were doing these huge layoffs. GM and Chrysler were doing layoffs. Ford, I don't think, took any buyouts at that point, but I think they were doing big layoffs as well, if I remember correctly. With Toyota, they were doing just buyouts, asking people who, who might be interested in leaving to take payout to leave. My partner at the time, she got a job in San Francisco at UCSF. And so we took the buyout and moved out here. And I started getting into real estate because deep down, I knew I didn't love working, you know, these kind of traditional jobs by then. You know, I'd started working when I was 15 at McDonald's, making $5.15 an hour and was always trying to, you know, just try to learn and grow and kind of increase my earning potential. And eventually I got to the point where I realized that working for other people wasn't going to get me where I wanted to be financially and also from a freedom standpoint. So I started doing real estate myself in 2010, you know, listening to educational materials. Uh, I did one of the, you know, Light and Wealth Institute thing it was called, you know, went to the Kiyosaki Rich Dad Education, like three-day event kind of thing. Started driving for dollars and door knocking on my own. Got a wholesale deal made a quick $10,000 off that. It was a two-bedroom, one-bath property in Antioch. And it was a completely different time because nobody else knew about it. And you know, I did it all through the mail. It was an older gentleman. I had just reached out to him on the phone and sent the contract and the earnest money deposit through the mail, assigned the contract with somebody who ultimately did the project. And it was a very cool experience. And so I realized that I didn't have the skill set or the discipline to continue to do it just by myself on my own. So I found a mentor at one of the clubs that I was working at. He had a small team that he was working with and putting together. I was very inexperienced. And unfortunately, he was ill and didn't know it. And he had to bow out of the business. We didn't make a whole lot of traction at that stage. And by then, my runway had run out. And so I decided to I'd go back to the workforce to go back to what I knew. You know, I had a good resume. I had a good background. And so I decided I wanted to get into an industry that I could sink my teeth into learning opportunities and growth opportunities for my own professional development and people skills development. So I started getting into the solar industry which at the time was growing very well and very aggressively. And it still is growing and solar really is a, a wonderful product that is going to continue to grow. And it just makes sense from a lot of different standpoints, economically, environmentally. And so I got into that industry and immediately started working on project management skills, working on these large scale national projects and use that as a platform to continue to grow always looking for new opportunities, always looking to create value, always looking to do new things. Did that for several years, changed companies a handful of times, was always looking for growth opportunities. And it was probably, it was 2016, 2017, where I had finally gotten to a point where I had saved up enough capital where I was ready to kind of step away from working for, you know, for working for others. I had enough capital set aside to you know, give myself a good probably two years to, okay, focus on actually doing this myself. Because I'm the kind of person that if I have a job, you know, I'm going to focus on that. If I make a commitment to do something, I'm going to do it and I'm going to push myself to do it to my best. And so you know, I really respect people that have the ability to have a job, but also compartmentalize that and work on their own thing at the same time. 
it was difficult for me to do that because I was always just throwing myself into whatever project I was working on. So when it was time to walk away in mid-2017, that's what I did. I you know, gave three weeks notice. I had just launched a big program and took a couple of months off, took some vacation with my then girlfriend, my now wife. We traveled a little bit, took time off. I took some courses at CCSF, City College of San Francisco, marketing courses, business courses. And end of the year, 2017, I was like, okay, I'm ready to do this again. So uh, I sat down, did a direct mail marketing campaign on my own, did everything wrong. I paid too much. My list wasn't as refined as it should have been. And I only did one drop. So I didn't have that consistency. So I kept going to these clubs and I just kept meeting and networking with people and just kept putting myself out there until eventually I started doing things and meeting people and eventually got paired up with my current partner, Jason Lefley, who's fantastic. We work really well together, met him at these clubs, and we just go out there and we work very well together and we work hard and just go out to make these things happen. That's an amazing story. And it's really cool that in 2009, when most people were like terrified of getting laid off and not having a job, you were actually excited because you said, this is my opportunity to create my own business. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it was a unique opportunity, you know, and I was definitely uniquely situated because I was fortunate I didn't have a lot of student debt. I had gone to a state college. You know, my father had helped pay for college and I worked and I also got some scholarships. So thankfully, I didn't have any student debt and I had been working for several years and so was able to utilize the opportunity to, to go after something new and something different. So I was very fortunate. And how long was that gap in your resume between when you left that first job and got your second one? It was about a year, I would say, maybe a year and a half. So I moved to San Francisco in 2009. That was July, June, July 2009. And it was probably a year and a half. That's right. It was that following. So it was about a year and a half, that gap is what that was. I actually got the job through a temp agency. And I'm glad you bring that up because, you know, stepping away from the career and, and having gaps in your resume definitely presents a risk because I had gone from full-time great benefits with a super large company, but because I had that stagnation period, that gap in my resume, you know, my best opportunity was actually to go work for a temp agency. And so I went and took a job. And again, I was focused on trying to build skill set as much as anything. But the best opportunity for me was to go to a temp agency and accept an hourly rate with no benefits and start working toward creating value at that company. And, you know, I was able to negotiate, create my value and negotiate a raise while I was there. And then there was a vice president who noticed me and he had been working on a project that I had taken over while I was there. He asked me to join him at his next company, hired me as a contract position there, and then eventually got hired on full time, had my benefits again. So it was this kind of ongoing evolution. So, you know, stepping away from a from a full time, well benefited job definitely has its risks. So I'm glad you brought that up. Exactly. Because I think a lot of people are scared of doing something like this full time because they are scared of the ramifications of leaving. But Ultimately, from your story, it seems that if you are a person of value and you can create value for your employers, then, you know, like you said, kind of start small, but then you can show your worth at your job and then eventually get back to where you were before. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. And so when you first left your job, let's say mid-2017, you said you were doing everything wrong. Do you want to just go over all those things that you were doing wrong again? 
what I was doing wrong with the real estate investing business. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, absolutely. So I was overspending, right? So I was listening to this, you know, I had one of these old educational materials from this guy. He did a lot of business in Florida. And I was listening to that audio program because it was one that I had and I knew and, and a part of me was afraid to kind of explore educational programs and things like that that were more relevant to the San Francisco Bay Area because it was just kind of a big, scary market to me. You know, I grew up in the Midwest and, you know, in 2008, I bought a house for $130,000 and that's just basically impossible to do in the Bay Area, right? Even 10 years ago. And so these price points that were out here were kind of terrifying to me. So I was kind of holding on to these old ideas and old methods and and methodologies that worked in this other market, a very different market, but I wasn't allowing myself to kind of grow and see the new opportunities in the market where I was. I wasn't reaching out and seeing what people were doing in the market where I wanted to actually be. And so one of the big mistakes I made was, you know, using his advice from this other educational guru guy to, you know, I overspent on my mail. I, you know, did 100% handwritten letters, which, you know, the letters that we do, I still do letters now. We do direct mail now, uh, but we use a handwritten font. Uh, it's much more cost effective. You know, it's a more of a volume thing. But the ones that I did were 100% handwritten, all first class. Five, I think it was like 5,000 pieces, something like that. And I spent, it was closer to 3,000 pieces. And it was only a single drop. And I didn't do a great job filtering the list either. I just grabbed a list from Property Radar that was high equity. I didn't take the time to do any list stacking, any data mining, you know, because what we do today is, you know, we look at the list and we try to find, you know, multiple points that are going to make them more likely to want to respond to us. You know, long-term owner, high equity, out of state, some sort of probate situation, code violation, tax default, something like those. And as many of those different situations that they have, as many of those situations that they have, the better from the perspective of increasing the likelihood of them reaching out to us. Of course, people that are in bad situations, we want to help those people and create value for them. And that's how we're able to purchase their house in a way that makes sense for them and for us. But that was one mistake that I was making was I was using a list that wasn't very quality, wasn't very vetted, and I was overpaying for my mail. And I only did a single drop. Whereas now, what we're doing is we're making sure to drop consistently every five weeks. So we have 7,000 leads that we're doing right now. We did all the list stacking on those to, and we waited as many of these pain points as possible to maximize the likelihood of getting people to respond to us. And we're also doing it consistently. So if someone gets onto our list, unless they call us to say, take me off the list, ideally, obviously, we want to you know, have them call us to sell us the property. But if they ask us to take them off the list, we'll do that. But if they don't call ever, then they stay on the list until the house either sells or they call in. Yeah. So do you think another problem was that you were, another thing that you said was that you were using this guy from Florida as like, I guess your guru, and he was telling you strategies that work in Florida, but not necessarily work here in the Bay Area. Yeah, absolutely. And his sales technique was very different than, you know, the kind of stuff that I'm learning now and I'm using now effectively. The strategy was very aggressive, very confrontational toward these people who were calling in to the mail. And in general, I didn't love that approach. And out here, it just didn't work at all. You know, people in the Bay Area tend to be fairly sophisticated. They understand that their property is very valuable. 
and they're less likely to let it go to someone who isn't, say, approaching them in the right way. So getting sales training that was really effective and has honestly is a sales strategy that makes sense to me. You're just trying to understand what their problems are, what their situations are, so you can understand them and approach them from the perspective of, hey, I'm here to understand what your situation is and to tell you what I can offer. And if that works for you, that's fantastic. We can move forward. If not, that's okay. It's a numbers game. Not every deal makes, you know, makes sense for both parties. And if it doesn't make sense, that's okay. You always feel free to reach back out to me. But if it does make sense, this is what I can do and we'll do it. And that was a sales process that just made a whole lot more sense to me. Yeah. And are you guys doing like postcards or mailers? We're doing mailers. So uh, the main marketing campaigns that we're doing, direct mail. So 7,000 pieces is what we do right now that we have on our lead list. And we uh, use a company called Open Letter Marketing. And uh, it's a variety of mailers, right? So there we send the first one as first class. And it goes in an envelope that, you know, has like a colorful pattern on it to stand out to look like an invitation or just some sort of piece of friendly mail. And it's printed with the handwritten font. It's not actually handwritten, but at a glance, it looks like it is handwritten, has the mail piece inside when you open it. It's typically just a trifold piece of paper, has the logo of my company name at the top. Hi, this is Ted and Jason. You know, we're interested in buying your house at 123 Main Street, whatever it is you know, please feel free to call us back. And then it has the phone number. And again, we mail those every five weeks. So, and we started doing that back in March of last year. So we're on 10 months now of doing mail consistently. And so that's what we're doing for direct mail. That's cool. I actually had the CEO of Open Letters Marketing, Justin Silverio, on my show a couple episodes ago. And yeah, I actually use your service to mail out some stuff over in San Carlos, but my volume is too low. So I didn't get too many responses from it. Like here in the Bay, you're probably getting like one call per thousand that you send out, right? I don't know what, what kind of risk you're getting. It's under 1% for sure. Yeah. It's probably a third of a percent or so. Yeah. Somewhere in there. Yeah. And then you just have them call you guys directly and then you pick up the phone day, you know, any time of day. Yeah, well, we use CallRail is what we do. So the number routes to the CallRail server and it will ring both of us simultaneously. So one of us will catch it. We do a good job of covering for each other if we're taking vacation or something like that. I just got married this past October and I was out of the country for my honeymoon. So Jason took over the business during that time. You know, Jason likes to go to Burning Man every year when he goes to that or camping or something like that. I catch the call and That was one of the other mistakes that I made actually early on was I also used an answering service for the direct mail. So that was actually additional costs that I had done. And some people like to do that and that works for them. I didn't have the best experience using an answering service just because it seemed like people were asking them questions they didn't know how to answer. And I just said, everybody I'd talked to who was doing the business well and doing it consistently in the Bay said, yeah, I answer the phone myself. And that's, you know, just the best way because I want to catch them and talk to them and be able to convert them. I think eventually we'll have people, uh, we'll have live VAs answer the phones. I know a lot of people do that as well. Uh, But right now, yeah, we're answering them ourselves. And uh, yeah, we'll catch them. And if they call in the middle of the night, you know, it'll go to voicemail or it'll be text and we'll catch them first thing in the morning. CallRail also has a texting function too, because the letters always say, feel free to call or text us. Some people prefer just to text. Some people are just confirming that we're actual people and not some answering machine or something like that, because that happens a lot too. People appreciate getting a live person. 
a lot of the time it's interesting too because a lot of people will call and be like is this a real person is this ted or jason and people appreciate talking to the actual person who's addressed on the actual mail piece so that's one thing that we found is effective as well so when they call you guys what do you say typically just answer hi this is ted with intentional property solutions how can i help you today first thing that i say that's a very good introduction. And you go something like, oh, yeah, I got a letter from you. You want to buy my house? And then you say something like, oh, yeah, obtain your address from your property condition and the same script that pretty much everyone else has. For the most part, yeah. You know, yeah, they'll, they'll say, hi, you keep sending me all these letters, which means that the marketing is working because they're recognizing the logo and the name and everything. They'll say, yeah, thank you for reaching out. And, you know, might you be interested in selling your property? And they said, well, usually they'll say, well, what's your offer? And I'll say, well, happy to give you an offer. Absolutely. And typically, the best offer I can give you is if I can take a look at the property. Usually, what we do is this phone call is three to five minutes just to answer a couple of questions, make sure whether or not it even makes sense for me to take any sort of next step with you. If it does make sense to take a next step, we can figure out what that is. If not, then that's okay. So the very first thing that you do is sort of set the expectation of how long the phone call is going to be and what's going to happen during that phone call, and then give them permission to say no thank you at the end of it. So right off the bat, you're kind of relieving pressure from any sort of expectation that they have to perform or whatever it is. And then you just go through and ask them to talk through, you know, can you tell me a little bit about the house? You just get them talking about themselves and their situation and, you know, just use little statements to continue the conversation. Oh, that's interesting. Thank you for sharing. You know, tell me a little bit more about that, just getting them talking and describing the property. And eventually you want them to, you know, tell them why you're, they're interested in selling. And cause that's ultimately what you're trying to do is you're trying to build rapport and you're trying to understand what their actual situation is and why they want to sell. Because if they don't know who you are, if they don't trust you, if there's no rapport built, then the only thing they're interested in is your number. And if all you do is throw out a number on that first phone call, they have no real reason to continue talking with you. So it's really about getting them to open up a little bit more, describe their situation, make sure that they want to continue working with you, and then set up a time to go visit the property if it makes sense to do that. And if it's not, that's okay. And if they ask you to remove them from the list, that's what we'll do. And uh, so, yeah. Yeah. So I guess the purpose of that first conversation is to build a rapport and try to schedule a time to meet in person. And ideally, you don't want to give out that offer number until you actually do meet them in person, right? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, sometimes they'll insist and that's okay. And we just tell them, I just tell them, you know, happy to give you a number. I can give you a range right now, just based on, you know, the little information that I have, you know, I'll have to assume a certain level of repair and make some other assumptions about the property, but I can definitely give you a range. And sometimes they'll hear the range. And if that is close enough to what they're interested in hearing, then they'll say, okay, let's set up a time to meet. And if it's nowhere near what they want, because many times they want, you know, they want market price, fixed up price for a property that's, you know, original. And if that's not going to work, then it's good to know that as soon as possible, because that's not somebody you want to spend time visiting anyway. But if you're close, then you can visit at the property, take them through the sales process, and that will maximize your chances of actually getting the property under contract. Yeah, that makes sense. So let's talk about your partnership with Jason. Mm-hmm. Uh, you said you left your company in like mid-2017. And, uh, you know, I actually met Jason in person at another meetup. I think it was like November of 2018. I think at the time you guys weren't actually partnered up. So do you want to talk about, you know, how you met with Jason and how you decided to partner with him for your business? Yeah, absolutely. So I started doing this myself full time mid, late 2017. 
and did some things myself in 2018. I did, you know, I had helped another investor uh, wholesale a house that he had closed on. And so I had made a little bit of money in, in mid 2018. I had set goals for myself in 2018 and wasn't anywhere near them. And Jason and I had been running into each other at the different clubs. We met at Rules Club, Jess Club, North Bay Burial Wealth Builders, Michael Morangelo's Club, and some of these additional education uh, networks and uh, networking events. And, you know, just all part of the process, getting to know people and talking to people, trying to understand where they are in the business and what they're doing. You know, Jason had been doing it full time as well. And we had talked about, you know, are you interested in doing one of the things that we had, you know, discussed with each other was the challenge of holding yourself accountable, you know, not having that office environment, not having a boss or a team, whatever, to kind of keep on top of you to make sure that you're actually doing the work that you've committed to doing. And that was one of the very early challenges to overcome. So one of the solutions to that was just to do a weekly check-in call, set goals for the week, you know, did you do X, Y, and Z kind of thing. And, you know, we started doing that and uh, that turned into more collaboration, you know, actually doing things together, analyzing deals together, talking through as we got to know each other and, and got more comfortable with each other, talking a little bit more about what we were doing, actually doing in the business, what we weren't doing and what we should have been doing, talking about the people that we saw in the business and what they were doing and what we should be doing. And, you know, Jeff Pollock's group, actually, he started talking about the one thing, the book, The One Thing by Gary Keller of Keller Williams Realty. And one of the things that he talked about in his group was, you know, if you're lacking in something and somebody has a complementary skill set, you know, if one plus one is much greater than two, then partner up with that person and collaborate and work with that person and see what skills you can complement each other. And, you know, if you need accountability or support, or whatever it is, you know, it just makes sense to work with somebody or with a team that will be able to provide that piece that you're lacking, whether it's capital or time or knowledge or whatever it is. And so with Jason and I, the initial one, like I said before, was accountability, but then also talking through, okay, what skills are we lacking? So it became, okay, what skill sets should we actually start sharpening? So that turned into, well, let's maybe start doing some door knocking together. Let's start doing some driving for dollars together. Maybe we should start, you know, start doing more shared goals, things like that. And it was October of 2018. We sat down, we met at a cafe in San Francisco. And, you know, Jason was like, you know, my birthday's coming up. And this year hasn't come to fruition the way that I wanted and I said the exact same thing. I was like, we're in the third quarter now, and none of my goals are anywhere near where I want them to be. Let's get serious about this because the runway is running out. And so we sat down and we started looking at the one thing, book by Gary Keller, started actually planning a lot of our goals and a lot of the year together, started doing the door knocking, the driving for dollars. And as we continued progressing doing that, we just gained more comfortable with each other and found that we collaborated very well. And it was March timeframe that Jason had gone to one of Raul's marketing, one of his marketing boot camps, you know, and said, if you have the desire to do the mail campaign, but you don't have the capital, then, you know, find someone who does have the capital and do a written partnership with them on doing that mail campaign together. So Jason came to me and said, you know, are you interested in doing this? 
I had my last six months of runway. At that stage, you know, I had runway and I had emergency fund and I had about six months left where I was like, okay, this is going to be the money that I have to give myself six months to find a job if I can't make the real estate thing work. And when we were looking at it, I realized this is enough money to do the mail campaign for at least five months, five to six months, and to have my own living costs taken care of if we actually make a deal happen. And that was sort of the all-in moment where I said, okay, let's go ahead and do that. So it was a $25,000 total investment. We put $20,000 into the mail campaign itself in the data, and then $5,000 additional for you know additional operations and administrative costs. And we put together a scope of work that kind of detailed exactly, you know, okay, this is the amount of capital that I'm going to be contributing. These are what the splits are going to be. This is how reimbursement is going to happen. And these are the things that we're going to do. And that included specific activities that we were both going to do, right? Cold calling. We were doing a lot of cold calling at the time, continuing to do the driving for dollars and all of the inbound calls. And Jason has a background and is a software background. And so he's very good at setting up systems and going through the data. So he handled that piece very well. I handled a lot of the front relationship management with realtors and other people that we were reaching out to. And both of us answered the calls and we're constantly just coaching each other. And so we started that mail campaign end of March and of last year. And we didn't get anything right away because those things take time to kind of come to fruition. But during that time, we started learning new skills we started doing ringless voicemails to realtors and that was actually a very effective way to market to people because we found that ringless voicemails, you know, sellers don't necessarily love those, but the realtors, they actually want to hear from you. If you're serious and you're going to buy a house, they want to be able to actually work with you. So we would send out ringless voicemails to realtors. They would call us back be like, Hey, we're looking to buy fixer properties in the Bay. And that's actually how we found our very first deal together in San Mateo was through a pocket listing with a realtor. And so before we go into that, man, it's super ballsy of you guys to actually go all in and like your last couple of months savings, you're going to put into a direct mail campaign. That is very, very ballsy and kudos to you guys for uh, <laughs> having the guts to do that. Thank you. And yeah, I don't necessarily recommend that for people who are listening to this right now. You know, at that stage, for sure, we were all in at that stage. And for me, it was, we had built up enough skills and we had been doing it long enough. And I was like, if I don't try this, if I don't give this my honest all in effort, I'm always going to wonder whether or not I could have actually done it. If I use this runway to go back and find a job that I know I'm not going to be satisfying doing, you know, I'll still have a family and I'll still live a good life and everything and I'll be happy, but I'll always wonder whether or not I actually could have made it work the way that I always dreamed that I could. And so, yeah, that was definitely the all-in moment and definitely stressful, but it worked out and very glad that I did it. Absolutely. I mean, it takes a significant amount of effort to actually make direct mail work. Like when I was doing in maybe late 2019, I was sending out like, what, 400 pieces of direct mail to some specific targeted places in San Carlos. And I got some calls back, but it didn't work out. Whereas before I sent out maybe like 7,000 pieces with Sean Kelly, and we actually got a deal out of it. We got a very profitable deal out of it. And you need to have the balls to commit. But the thing is, like, we say it's gutsy because you're spending, like, your last runway. But if we play, like, a video game, 
I made a video about this on YouTube, but you play a video game, right? And you know that if you spend like 10,000 gold, you can get the best weapon. And the best weapon means you can go kill a bigger boss and make 20,000 gold or whatever. No one cares about that in a video game. Like they're totally okay with spending all the money they have because they know they can make it back in the future. But for, I guess, real life, people don't feel that same way. And that holds them back a lot of the time. Yeah, absolutely. Well, and it's understandable because, I mean, it's a lot to risk, you know, and I was uniquely situated. I didn't have children to take care of. You know, I had a partner that I, you know, romantic partner, my girlfriend, who is now my wife. I knew that she was supportive of what I was doing. And, you know, she was like, this is your dream. You should do it. This is your money. And she knew that if it didn't work out, that I could go back and get the job and rebuild and do all that. So there is risk. And so I understand it's not for everybody. And for people who make an honest effort and can't, you know, for whatever reason, it doesn't pan out. You know, I definitely respect people who at least try because, you know, the difference between me and someone who it didn't work out with was it worked out and I'm still doing it because it was able to work out. So, yeah. So understand it's a big deal. It's scary and it's exciting and it's a lot of fun. And at the end of the day, you just kind of got to decide for yourself what you want and go after it. Makes sense. And so how long was it until you actually got your first deal from the agent? We started the direct mail campaign in March, and it was May timeframe when we got a realtor through the ringless voicemail to actually work with us. And that was probably a month or two months of doing the ringless voicemail to realtors when we actually found a pocket listing that wasn't going to go to the MLS. And the story behind that was that you know, we had sent a ringless voicemail out to somebody and they connected us with somebody else in their office who knew of a pocket listing. And it was a property in San Mateo that it was the, the mother was going into assisted care. Her adult son lived with her. The adult daughter was the trustee. The property didn't qualify for a traditional loan. And also the adult son wasn't cooperating with the sale. He didn't want to leave the property at all. He was very much against everything that was happening. He didn't feel like he was in control. And so he refused to leave the property in order to let open houses happen or in order for it to go on the open MLS. Plus it had roof issues, foundation issues, and some other safety issues that prevented traditional buyers from actually getting traditional loan for it. So, you know, went in, met the agent at the property. And uh, during the open house, it was like a one hour window where we went in and moved quickly just to get the condition of the property to tour the outside and everything. The one bedroom where the adult son was located, he was in that room and we couldn't go into that room. And of course, we just were respectful and, and let him be and everything. And we made an offer on the property, you know, it was cash. And, you know, closed within 30 days. I think we offered 15 days is what we had offered. And, you know, with no financing contingencies on the loan, with the seven-day inspection period, you know, at a price that was not too far below what their asking price was. And they liked our terms because it was cash and they knew that we could get, you know, either a hard money loan or whatever, private money to close on the property. And they could close the trust and they could move on. So that was how we ultimately found that property was through the ringless voicemails. And, you know, the adult son continued not to cooperate and we worked with the sellers and we're like, well, we're sensitive, you know, to what's going on. It's a family situation. The sister was a trustee and we're like, you know, we're here and happy to support however we can. 
you know, please understand that we need to make sure that the property is delivered vacant. You know, we will work with people that have tenant issues or some sort of person that needs to be, you know, bought out to leave the property. Uh, but that wasn't part of this offer. We were paying cash for the property as is, delivered vacant. So we allowed them the timeline that they needed to take care of the brother. Ultimately, they came to an agreement. He moved out. We closed on the property and we actually partnered with Raul on that one. You know, we scraped together the earnest money deposit, Jason and I did ourselves. And that was actually another moment where it was the last shred of my runway. And Jason actually got a loan against some Bitcoin that he had. So both of us brought half of their earnest money deposit in order to lock up the contract in escrow. And then we partnered with Raul, did a JV agreement and closed on the property with his company. And then he had contacts at a hedge fund who were interested in parking some of their capital and immediately resold it to them about a week later for a hefty profit. So uh, that was the very first deal. Damn, that's super exciting. And when was this? All in May of 2019? We closed in June of 2019. Okay. Yeah, so we started in May and ultimately closed June of 2019. That's right. Are you free to share those numbers? Yeah, absolutely. We closed, at, it's all public record also, 1.417, I think. It was like right at 1.42 and uh, immediately resold it to the hedge fund for 1.625, I believe. Holy crap. Yeah, it's right at a $200,000 profit, as is. Yeah, double closed, no flipping need required, and you guys got like, paid out for just getting a good deal. That's right. That's right. So we were able to find a situation and help those people out of their situation. And our partner was able to find people who were willing to close in the property at a price that worked for them because it was a hedge fund. They didn't have to, you know, my understanding is that they didn't have to pay financing for their own money because they were investing it. I think they had their own crews and their own people. And they actually ended up reselling it for just over $2 million. We, we estimated the ARV to be I think, you know, right at two to 2.1 million, I think they sold it at 2 million 50,000. So everybody ended up doing well on that deal. It was a pretty powerful, pretty exciting one. That's so exciting. And so what do you guys do afterwards? We, we celebrated, right? We got right back into the business. We replenished, we reimbursed ourselves for the earnest money deposit, and we just went back to beating the bushes. And by that time, one of the direct mail pieces had made its way back to us. So there was a property in San Francisco. The sellers had purchased it, you know, 30 plus years ago. They lived out of state, uh, I think in Idaho, and they had gotten one of our mail pieces and they gave it to a realtor friend of theirs. And they said, you know, we're interested in selling. We're not selling yet, but we'll keep you posted. You know, just reach out to these guys and see if they're interested, because if they want to buy the house at a price that makes sense for us, then we're happy to do that without going to market. And so that realtor reached out to us early-ish in the year. So it was, you know, we had done our first mail. The realtor, I think, was actually the very first phone call that we received from the direct mail campaign. And she told us that it wasn't, it was from the first drop for sure, and from the first batch. And she told us that, you know, they weren't ready to sell, but that she was going to hold on to our information when they were. And we just followed up with her, you know, over time. And then it was, I think it was September timeframe. It was, yeah, August, September timeframe when she came back to us and said, okay, they're interested in hearing your offer. She had the listing agreement signed with them. We asked her, the agent, if she was interested in representing us in a dual agency. She said, yeah, I can do that. 
you know, I think I'm just going to accept the regular commission, the two and a half commission that I would get, you know, just I want to facilitate the deal and everything. And so we got the property under a contract price. And uh, this was in Parnassus Heights is where the property was in San Francisco, super desirable area. And it's funny too, because when we first sat down to look at our numbers, to look at the actual mail campaign of where we wanted to target, we debated not targeting San Francisco at all because that was just too big for us, right? It was just too big of a dream, too scary, whatever it is. But we were like, you know what? Why not? It was only like 50 or 60 leads that met the criteria anyway of the list stacking. And so we decided, let's try it. Why not? Let's include it in the list. And then we got it. You know, we looked at the property. We're like, okay, you know, we don't have any idea whether or not this price is going to work for us, but we put it at a price where we thought made sense from a development standpoint because it had a decent amount of square footage, but it also had a lot of land and it had some really great views up near UCSF and uh, overlooking the city. And so we, didn't know anything about San Francisco code. So we treated it as just a learning opportunity. So we're like, all right, we're going to go to the planning department. We're going to go to the building department and we're going to talk to these people and try to understand what exactly the process would be if we wanted to add square footage to the property, expand outside the envelope and make this property as valuable as possible, you know, to make this thing worth over, you know, $4 million or whatever it is, whatever the numbers were that we were working with at the time. And, you know, had our 15 days spent of uh, inspection period, spent the 15, spent the first seven days just doing our homework and reaching out to contractors and architects and bringing people through and trying to understand, you know, what can actually be done with this property. And eventually we came to the realization that staying inside the envelope was going to make the most sense. We reached out to a rule again and we said, hey, you know, please come take a look at this. We want to understand just how good our numbers are. We're not sure about them anymore. And he said, yeah, this is going to need a price reduction. He brought in his team and his architect and looked at it. And he said, you know, I think if you guys want to partner on this, I could probably find another buyer for it like we did with Starlight. And if you guys want to do another JV and they're able to bring the price down, I think we can move on this. And so uh, we went back to the listing agent and we taught her, like we did our homework. These are the numbers that we were originally working with. This is the amount of reduction that we need in order to move. And if we get this price, we can definitely move on this property. But if it doesn't work for the sellers, then we understand and no harm, no foul. And they accepted it. I mean, they came down a few hundred thousand dollars down to the price where we needed. Wow. Yeah. And it was one of those things, what we heard was that they were planning on doing, putting the money, it wasn't retirement or anything for them. I think they were putting it into a fund for their kids' education. And I think they were putting a, I think they were using a tax shelter. So they were, I think, and again, I'm not a hundred percent on those details, but my understanding was that they were very happy with the deal and how it turned out. And of course, it had appreciated just an insane amount from when they had bought the property, you know, 30 plus years ago. So that was another exciting deal. And again, people had relationships in place where there was a developer who was ready to move on the property. So we resold the property right away. And it was another big deal. So basically another double close on that property. That's right. Did another, another one of those. Exactly. What was the original purchase price? That we had it under contract at or that we, we, we ended up closing at 1.8 million is what we ended up closing at. And we had it for originally? We had it under contract for just over two. Wow. Yeah, we had it under contract for just over two. But yeah, I mean, the property, the value inside the envelope, still a very valuable property, don't get me wrong. 
but the value of the property outside of the envelope would have taken about twice as long and would have doubled the holding costs. And so to do what we needed to do in order to get that high mark, it just wasn't feasible at the numbers that we were talking about. So, which is, and of course we presented that case with the agent who was representing us and, you know, had a dual agency as the listing agents, as the listing agent. And she was like, you know, these numbers make sense to me. And she went and presented it to the sellers and they accepted. So it worked out. What was your IRV when you were calculating the project? Inside the envelope, uh, three and a half million is about where we put it. And the project is still being worked on. We, you know, as I think three and a half to 3.7 million, somewhere in that range, where we were expecting it to be worth. But okay, so as is condition, like, is it livable or is that like a complete like teardown? It was livable. Yeah, you could move into it. But the layout was very funky. It was one of those properties where they, you know, additions had been done here and there kind of haphazardly over the years within the existing envelope. And the flow was off and it was weird. And the kitchen was very small. And, you know, there were staircases that were throwing off the flow of everything and walls that shouldn't have been there. And it was one of those projects where, yeah, it was livable. You could move into it. But in order to really maximize the value of the property, you basically have to tear everything out and start from scratch. And you definitely want to do new windows and basically everything, high-end appliances, do an all-new floor plan for the kitchen, for the bathrooms, for everything. So it was one of those projects that was, in order to maximize the value of the property, it was going to need an all-new floor plan. And that was one of the things that Roll brought to the table was an architect who sat down and thought through those plans and what made sense. And the end developer, and my understanding is that the end developer ended up using those plans in that architect. Cool. So what did you guys end up setting up for? Uh, 2.1. Wow. Very nice. Thank you. Yeah. So it was a, another exciting deal and very blessed and very fortunate, you know, and it was one of those things where the hard work and the perseverance and just focusing and doing your best and trying to find and work with the right people, it just ultimately really paid off. Exactly. Like I remember seeing you guys, I think maybe it was June or July and you guys just had this aura of like, yes, it's working. And finally, like everything's bearing fruit. Exactly. It's a validation. This is working. I haven't thrown everything away, right? It was very exciting. And it continues to be exciting, you know, because it's, for me, the most exciting part of it is really about the growth. It's about being able to take control of my own destiny and you know, working for these big companies. That was gratifying at the time, but I always had a vision of how things could be and how they could always be better. And I always wanted to kind of be the person kind of deciding, okay, this is how things should go and how they should be and what we can do. And that's actually, it's scary because you're the only person, you're the one that's most, that's responsible for what you do and what you, how you're actually spending your time. But, you know, when you take that leap and you start working toward it and you start making it work, it's super exciting and uh, very gratifying. And so what are you guys doing on a day-to-day basis now? Are you still doing cold calling, door knocking and driving for dollars? Still doing the direct mail. So that's going out on autopilot. So feeding that machine to make sure that the direct mail is going out consistently. Doing uh, lots of realtor voicemails still. So sending out a lot of ringless voicemails to realtors. Uh, Also doing a lot of emailing to realtors. So reaching out to people. And I'm actually now looking for my own private residence. So my wife and I are looking for a property to buy for ourselves. Ideally a triplex or a fourplex somewhere in the Bay Area. And so we're reaching out to realtors to see if they have anything off market or coming soon, you know, something that hasn't hit the MLS yet and something that we might be able to purchase, live in ourselves. So doing that, but also at the same time, looking for multifamily properties and 
answering phone calls. We're not doing driving for dollars so much anymore, actually. And it, that's simply a time issue, right? We had gotten to the point where we had all this return mail and we would skip chase the return mail. Where before, when we first started doing the driving for dollars, you know, we picked San Leandro was the area that we picked. And we basically blanketed it, right? So we went up and forth, you know, up and down all the streets. We had an app that would actually track where we were. So we actually have maps that showed exactly where we went. And so we could track trace on the map to make sure that we, you know, hit every nook and cranny and every street in that city. And then we also would take direct mail that was returned, the first class mail. And we would take the direct mail that came back that was returned and we would skip trace it. And then we would go try to find, do door knocking, targeted door knocking to that return mail. So we did that as well. But that was unfortunately, we both enjoyed doing that. It was one of those things that like, we weren't very good at the door knocking and the dragon for dollars at first, because, you know, it's a new skill and you're talking to new people all the time. And it's anything new is kind of scary. And everything new is when you're not good at it, you don't like doing it. But once you get better at it, you start liking to do it. And we actually miss it now because we got pretty good at it. And things that we had been looking and driving for dollars a year ago is actually now coming back to us. We actually have been talking to a seller the last couple of weeks who was a driving for dollar lead that we had identified. We started mailing them and they reached back out to us over the last few weeks. We're still talking with them. They're still interested in working with us, it sounds like. And then also another property that I'm visiting tomorrow, same deal. It was a Dragon for Dollars lead. And so it took, you know, that was May of last year when we first, you know, reached out to these people. And now it's January, so that's eight months, you know. So it takes time for these things to come back. But we're not doing the Dragon for Dollars simply from a time standpoint. Both of us are still answering the phone calls, visiting properties. You know, Jason is developing some software to help automate our tools as much as possible. So that's the bulk of what we're doing right now. So trying to automate the business as much as possible, leveraging technology, always sharpening our skills, always trying to look forward and learn the new skill set and do the next thing. Yeah. And like I mentioned before, one of the main reasons why I wanted to have you guys on the show, or I guess one of the main reasons why I want to have you on the show is because your story is basically one of like extreme perseverance, where you go for like two years of having no deals, no prospects, and two years later after getting beaten down and seeing your runway basically shrink to zero, you still basically went all in and put all your money in these deals. So how do you have the confidence to keep going without these prospects? And what tips can you give to new investors who might be in the same boat? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I would say that the most important thing is to understand what you actually want. You know, most people don't decide in life what they actually want. They kind of just go from thing to thing. So, you know, if you're in real estate and you're trying to make it work and you're trying to understand what you can do better I would say that the most important thing is to understand what it is exactly that you want out of life and what real estate specifically is going to do for you. For me personally, it's about independence and freedom and personal growth and being in control of my own destiny in terms of where I'm going and where I'm headed. But if you understand what it is exactly that you want and you understand why you want it, being able to draw on that motivation when times are tough is going to be the thing that helps drive you the most. And then once you understand what you want and why you want it, and when it's a part of your identity and who you are, you can start figuring out strategies actually to do it. And you can start figuring out what exactly you don't have that you still need in order to get you to that next level. 
whether it's, you know, an accountability partner or if it's capital, you know, you can find someone who has the capital, you know, if it's relationships, you can go networking and you can meet people and keep putting yourself out there, you know, but the most important thing is to understand why you're doing it, what you really want out of it, and then to stay focused on it long enough to make it stick. Because making it stick is one of those things that it takes time and it can be challenging. So you need to make sure that you give yourself time to do it and to make sure that you're giving yourself permission to make mistakes and learn from those mistakes because that's really a critical piece of it. Awesome. So Ted, how can people get in contact with you? Absolutely. So uh, my cell phone number, direct cell phone, 415-937-4759. You can also check me out on my website. My email address is ted at intentionalpropertysolutions.com. So T-E-D at intentionalpropertysolutions.com. That's I-N-T-E-N-T-I-O-N-A-L property solutions with an S at the end dot com. I'm very practiced spelling that out, talking to realtors. (laughs) Spelling that on the phone and maybe to sell it as well. Exactly. Cool. All right, Ted. Well, thank you so much for your time. It was a pleasure having you on the show. Sean, thank you very much for having me. It was a whole lot of fun. And thank you again. This was a watermark moment for me and really appreciate the opportunity. Here are some of the key takeaways from this episode. You should never give up in this business. If you happen to run out of finances and need to take up a day job, go back to work for a bit and learn what you need to do to improve. Think about what you can do and get back into it when you're ready. Evaluate if you're using the right lists and make sure that you stay consistent with your marketing efforts. Stay with it, partner with the right people, and you'll be a successful investor as well. I hope you enjoyed this episode. You can find the show notes and other episodes on our site, everythingrei.com slash podcast. If you live in the Bay Area, join our meetup group, where we meet up twice a month in San Jose at meetup.com slash everythingrei. And if you thought this was a great episode, let me know what your key takeaway was and share it with a friend who's interested in real estate investing. Thanks and have a great day. This was another episode of the Everything Real Estate Investing Show with Sean Pan. If you enjoyed the show, leave us a five-star rating. It will only take a second and it'll help a lot. You can contact me at sean at everythingrei.com. That's S-E-A-N at everythingrei.com. Thanks and have a great day.